Good morning. Can you hear me? All right. A little, a little higher there. All right. Well, you uh, have not come to a social gathering. You have come in the presence of God. Are you excited about that? The Lord is here, and, and I know that you have had a long week. I know that you have had uh, questions that you cannot answer yourself. You have bills that maybe you cannot pay for yourself. You have diagnosis that you cannot take care of yourself. And that's why we're not coming to a club, but we're coming to the feet of Jesus here today. And so I pray that you've been blessed already. Wasn't that song powerful? And uh, we truly have a great God. The only question that remains is if we have great faith. And that's the question that each and, of, uh, each and every one of us has to answer. Today we are going to continue our reading through the Bible. As a church, we are reading through the Bible. And uh, next uh, Saturday, if you're here, and if you're not here, you could see it on our Facebook post of our university page. We're going to be putting out the next reading plan for the next three months. If you've been following along... All the sermons have been based on some part of the reading of the previous week. And today we are going to be talking about the Antichrist forerunner. So let us pray and get into our message today. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have drawn us here to your house of worship. And I know you have drawn us here for a reason. Maybe it is a smile from a friend. Maybe it's a hug from a spiritual mother or father. Maybe it is fellowshipping together. Maybe it is a song that we just needed to hear today for us. Maybe it is a scripture or seeing the young children and being inspired. Or maybe it's a part of the sermon that's about to be shared. But whatever the reason, we pray that we will receive it, for we have come and we have been drawn by you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever been swindled before? Have you ever been swindled before? The National Business Bureau says that no matter how intelligent or careful you are, at least once in your life, you will be swindled. Swindling has been happening for many years. In this country, it has become almost tradition since we came as explorers from Europe to the Native Americans and offered them $24 worth of colorful beads for the island of Manhattan. Well, that tradition continued in the city of New York. As new immigrants came over, many immigrants thought that they bought the bridges all over New York City, only to find out that they had been swindled. I've been swindled before. Have you been swindled before? I remember going on vacation to Mexico, and, and you know how it is when you go to Mexico to those tourist hot spots. They have all these authentic Mexican um, pottery, and they say that some lady who's 90 years old, who's been doing that since she was a child, has handmade it, or some old man has hand-carved, and they've painstakingly have drawn on it. And so you're looking at this, and you're saying, wow, I can't get this anywhere else in the world. I just have to get it on this trip to Mexico. And I got swindled. I bought three or four of those items, and I was so excited to bring them back. But when studying them a little bit closer, I looked at them and flipped them upside down to find a stamp in the bottom of them, made in China, made in China. And so it is that many of us have been swindled, and swindling happens all the time. 
But one of the greatest swindles that ever took place happened in the 1960s by, the by a man, a painter, a young Frenchman by the name of David Steen. He painted, catch this, 400 imitations of the old masters. He created imitations of Picasso's, of Renoir's, of Van Gogh's. He made 400 imitation paintings, and he signed the names of those artists as their masterpiece, and they passed off as originals. That's how good he was. In fact, to date, there are only 110 of these forgeries that have been detected and recovered. The other ones look so much like the originals that they're still out there in circulation. Well, Mr. Steen was arrested in Paris, France, and he was released in the 1980s. And after his stay in prison, he had a change of hearts. And he decided to continue painting, but now paint under his own name. Today, he is one of the most famous artists in the world, and he is a noted lecturer, an expert lecturer. And guess what his lectures are entitled? His lectures are entitled, How to Spot a? How to Spot a Fake or a Forgery. And he is an expert on finding those fakes. But friends, as clever as David Steen is, as a con man, he is a novice. A what? A what? A novice compared to the expert of them all, the swindler of them all, which is our enemy of our souls, Satan. The devil stands out without peer when it comes to swindling, cheating, and counterfeiting. The Bible gives him a name, a title. His name is the father of? The father of lies. Now, of course, Satan doesn't work openly. Satan doesn't work openly. In fact, he works through other people, other powers, and other agencies. Because if we knew the enemy was before us, we would run away from him to God and not be deceived. So Satan works under the, the cover, masquerading himself many times in religious garbs, in religious clothing, mixing truth and error, and trying to draw men away from God to false worship. Now, the Bible warns us that, you, that Satan will use a front man, and that front man is called the, the front man is called the, oh, are you still with me this morning? What's the title of today's sermon? The Antichrist Forerunner. The Bible warns us that in the last days, Satan will use a front man to deceive and swindle many, and the name of that front man is the Antichrist. So the Bible tells us that this Antichrist will swindle many. Will swindle many. Now, the Antichrist is a powerful name. It has gotten a lot, of, a lot of attention in popular culture because when people see the name, automatically they think, well, Christ, we know who that is. And Anti, that must be someone who comes up against Christ. But as maybe you have heard in many other sermons or evangelistic series, the anti before Christ can not only stand for against, but also in the place of or substitution. So the antichrist is not only against Christ, but just as real, he is in place of Christ. So the great deception of Satan through the antichrist is that he will use the front man to replace 
Jesus in the eyes of millions of believers. For you're trying to get the real thing, but instead you're stuck with the, with the forgery. Now, when we look at Jesus, we find that he has two great distinct offices. Office number one, Jesus is our king. Amen? And the Bible also says that Jesus is our priest. Amen? So when the Antichrist comes to substitute Jesus, he will come to substitute the office of king and priest. King and priest. So the Antichrist is not going to be a violent opposer, but instead he's going to be a subtle, subtle imposter of Jesus, who's going to stand in the place of Jesus as a false king and a false priest. We see this throughout the Old Testament. The Bible is scared the believers will be swindled. The Bible warns believers all throughout scriptures, don't fall for the forgery. In Daniel chapter 7, the Antichrist is described as a beast. In Revelation chapter 13, he is described as a sea beast. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's described as the man of sin and the son of perdition, as we just heard in our reading this morning. In Daniel chapter 7 and 8, the Antichrist is referred to as a little horn, and in Revelation chapter 17, as the harlot woman. Over and over again, the Bible warns us, don't fall for the forgery. Don't fall for the Antichrist. But when we look at all these texts, which are primarily prophetic texts, they are given to us so we could find features of the Antichrist and not be swindled because we could recognize who the Antichrist or what the Antichrist is in these last days. But if you have been reading with us this week, and that's why it's so exciting to read through the Bible, you may have discovered that we also found the Antichrist, in our readings this week. And I had not seen it there before. Usually I'd seen it in the prophetic parts of the Bible, but it's exciting when you find something new in the Bible. And we find that through the stories that we find in 1 Kings, a story, not a prophetic symbol, God uses the story to give us more features of the Antichrist through an allegory in a story. So let us go to that story and let us find who the forerunner of the Antichrist is, which will give us more clues as to the description of the present-day Antichrist. The story begins with a promise, a promise that God made to a man, and that man was King David. David was the divinely nominated king of Israel, and the scripture describes him as a man after God's own heart. Oh, how I wish that we could be described that way too. As a man, a woman, a child after man, God's own hearts. And although he was not perfect, as we see in the stories in the Bible, he had amazing faith in God and desired to see God glorified above all else. And so God blessed David abundantly. He gave him peace from all his enemies. He gave him wealth. He gave him children. He gave him a house. And there David is sitting one day with all these blessings. And he's sitting there maybe eating some grapes, maybe hanging out with his families. And all of a sudden, he's thinking about how much God has given him. And he realizes that the Ark of the Covenants is, gonna, is out in some tents. 
And he says to himself, how is it that I have a house, that I have been so blessed by God and God doesn't have a house? Let me build God a house where he may dwell. Is that your attitude too? Look how much God has blessed me. I got to do something for him. I just got to do something for him. And so we get this, this moment, which I call the Nathan I messed up moment, or the prophet Nathan, my bad moment. Because David is so excited. He's like, I'm going to build a church. I'm going to build a house for God. And Nathan, the prophet's there with him. And Nathan, without even asking God, says, that's an excellent idea. Let's do it. You're going to do it. And they get all excited. And Nathan leaves the king's presence. And, and, and all of a sudden, he receives a message from God saying, uh-uh, David's not going to build my house. And so he has to go back to David and say, oh, David, my bad, my bad. I know I told you that you could build the temple, but my bad, it's not going to be you. It's not going to be you. And so God doesn't allow David to build his temple or his house, but he does give him a promise. And this is where we begin our story here this morning. In the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, the promise made to a king. It says there, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. I, going on to the next verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. And if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And verse 16, our last one, and your house, listen to this promise, and your house and your kingdom shall be established for how long? forever before you, and your throne, David, shall be established for forever. What if you received that promise? Your house, your children will be established forever. Isn't that what we pray for as parents? Let my child be saved. Let them be in the kingdom with me. David here got the assurance that his kingdom would last forever. And so the most significant part of this promise is that the son of David would sit upon his throne as king ruler over an everlasting kingdom. And when you study the Bible in the context of this beautiful promise, you will notice that there are many references in scriptures that connect Jesus to King David and this promise. The famous one is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 to 7. And it says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 to 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the next verse continues, says, For unto, uh, of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of who? Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order and establish it with his judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And also in Acts chapter 13, verse 22 to 23, we find the apostles are preaching the gospel to the world, and they're preaching about Jesus. So listen how they connect Jesus to King David in Acts chapter 13, verses 22 to 23. And it says, and when he had removed him, he raised up from them David as king, to whom also he gave a testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the what? To the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior whose name is who? Whose name is Jesus. So you see the connection between the promise that God made to David that your kingdom will last forever and a son of yours will sit on that throne that will last forever. Jesus, it seems, is this son. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, says it even more clearly. In that vision of John, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the roots and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. God promised David that his throne and his kingdom would be established forever because God knew that Jesus was going to be the descendant of David. And what is so significant about Jesus? He is not only the son of David, but he is also the son of God. And in him is fulfilled the promise to David. Luke chapter 1 Verse 32 to 33 says, He, Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no, no end. So David was a king who received the promise. And Jesus is a king who fulfilled the promise. But as I was reading 1 Kings, the question that came to my mind was, what about all these other kings? What about the story about all these other kings that sat on the throne of David? Because if Jesus is the son of David with a capital S, we find in the Bible, in the Old Testament, also sons of David with a lowercase s. And as I look at these kings, because they sat on the throne of David and they were sons of David, in a sense, they were also supposed to be a representation of Jesus, the king in the future. So every son of David, every grandson and great-grandson was supposed to point forward to the coming king, to Jesus Christ. How did they do? Did they do a good job? Did they do a good job representing that king, or did they do a bad job? Well, it started off good, right? The first son that reigned after David was King Solomon. And Solomon had many characteristics of Jesus. He was wise, he was humble, and all those characteristics that we also see in Jesus. But things started off good, but did not end well. We find in 1 Kings chapter 11, 
verses 1 through 8, how things ended with this great and wise king. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 8 tells us, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, the women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, Sidonians, and the Hittites. From the nation of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Is that still true, by the way, today? If you marry someone who believes something completely different than you, there's going to be a, a pulling one way and the, and the other way. Now our hope is always that you will pull them to the truth, but you know that the danger and the warning is there. And we see that in the life of Solomon. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, don't ask me, don't ask me, princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his, they turned away his hearts. The Bible continues telling us, for it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the Abominite of the Ammonites. And continue, and Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not fully follow the Lord as his father David did. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, which was the god that you did children sacrifice to, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So how did he live up, this lowercase son of David? Did he point forward? Did he represent the coming son, capital S, of David, Jesus Christ, in a, in a good way? Absolutely not. But he still was a son of, of David. And the Bible shows us that God promised David that his sons would sit on that throne for forever. And even though they were not good leaders, they were still the sons of David. And so next up, we have the next son. Who reigned after uh, Solomon, by the way, for you uh, Bible readers David, Solomon, and then David, Solomon, then, mm, you're looking around at, where's the elder? Where's the elder? Where's Pastor Jermaine? Where's Pastor Park? David, Solomon, Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam, even though his father had not done a good job, when it comes to honoring God and obedience, things started off really good for Rehoboam. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1 tells us, And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. Now you know how it is with elections, right? Or, in this case, anointing of kings. You want everybody to be on your side. If I was running for office, I want the majority of the people to vote for me. And so Rehoboam goes, and this is a good sign. All Israel had gone to do what? To make him king. So no problem. All he has to do is be on his best behavior, and what does he become? He becomes king. Not a problem. It should be simple. But you see, Solomon 
because he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, I mean, how, how many of you spend a little bit of money on your wife? Any husbands have spent a little bit of money on their wives? Some of you have bought her gifts, bought her clothes, bought her, you know, what she wanted. How many of you spent a little money on your wives? Anybody? Yeah. I'm sorry, wives. If they haven't spent money on you, they should, okay? Well, how much money would you have to spend if you had 700 wives? You know, you give one wife a, a nice gift, a nice dress, 200 other wives come. Why did you give her a gift and you didn't give me one? I want those same shoes. I want that same dress. I want those same necklaces and earrings. I mean, every time you did something for one wife, about 200, 300 wives would come wanting the same thing. And you had to feed them. And you know they don't want to live in the same house because when you go visit one, you want to spend some time with one, you don't want the other ones hearing in the other room. So you got to have a house for every or apartment for every single one. So in order to support his love life, Solomon had worked the people hard and he had taxed the people hard. So when he passed away and Rehoboam comes and the people are ready to make him king, they just have some small request for him. Your, your dad Solomon was really hard on us, you know, all his wives. Would you be willing to lower the tax and, and not work us so hard? Does that sound reasonable to you? That sounds reasonable to me. And so Rehoboam decides to go ask his buddies that he grew up, what should I do? And listen to the response that he gave the people in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 14. 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 14. And he says, And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made you your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with... Scourges. Another translation says, with scorpions. So my dad whipped you with whips. I'm going to whip you with, with scorpions. What would be your reaction if you were them? <laughs> oh, great. Can't wait for you to become king, right? Well, the Bible tells us that things did not go well for Rehoboam. Because in verse 16 of the same chapter, Now when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, what share have we with David? Because this was a son of David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. On that one day, Rehoboam, the son of David, lost the support of ten tribes. Ten tribes that are now referred to as Israel said, You're not our king, we're gone. We're leaving. We're going to be on our own. And so the son of David was left only with one tribe, his own tribe, the tribe of, of Judah. And so the people went, but you know how it is in those days. You just can't say, I don't want you to be king. You also seek to have another king. But remember, the Bible tells us that the son of David is the right king. And eventually, the son with a capital S will reign on the throne of David for forever. So no one else is supposed to sit on that throne. Even though that's a bad king, and it was a bad king, it's still supposed to be the son of David. So whoever tries to sit on that throne is an imposter. 
And friends, this is where we get introduced to the forerunner, the Antichrist forerunner. Because when Israel said, we don't want the son of David, Rehoboam, they decided to pick an imposter, someone to take his place. And we find that in 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 20. 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 20. When the people of Israel, 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 20. Now, it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam, what's the name? So you guys can remember that. Rehoboam and Jeroboam had come back. They sent for him and called him to the congregation, and they made him king over all Israel. And there was none who followed the house of David but the tribe of, of Judah only. So David's son, with a capital S, Jesus, will reign on the throne forever. But we know that in these last days, they will become an imposter called the Antichrist. They will try to take the place of Jesus as king and as priest. And so in the likewise, the son with a lowercase s of David in the time of 1 Kings also had an Antichrist imposter, and his name was Jeroboam. And so what I'm putting forward today is that we can learn something about Jeroboam through his story that will tell us what will happen with the Antichrist in these last days. It's not only through prophecy, it's not only through the books of Daniel and Revelation that we learn about the Antichrist, but here in the story of this man Jeroboam, who was replacing the son of David, we find the characteristics that you find in the Antichrist in these last days. So Rehoboam was ruling in Judah, one tribe. Jeroboam was ruling in Israel, ten tribes. It would seem that Rehoboam only had a small amount of time left until his kingdom was overthrown. But he had one thing going for him. The capital, Jerusalem, was located in Judah. And God had commanded every Israelite man from all tribes three times a year to come to Jerusalem for a religious festival. So, Everybody from every tribe would come to the city of Rehoboam three times a year. And Jeroboam thought this was a major problem. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26 to 32 tells us, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David if these people go up to offer sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn back to their lord Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of, of Judah. Therefore the king asked advice, made, what? Two calves of gold, and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put up in, in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made shrines on the high places, and he made priests. He made priests, 
Not from the Levites, but from every class of people who were not the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. Who offered sacrifices? Jeroboam did. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. This is incredible what he's doing. A great apostasy. So Jeroboam, when he discovered that the people were going to Jerusalem and offering sacrifice three times a year, he became worried that the tribes would again give their allegiance to Rehoboam. And so he said, in order for me to become king instead of David's son, I not only need to be declared king, but I also need to be declared priest. And so he decided to make his own gods, which were made of images, false gods. Are you starting to get the connection? The Antichrist, the modern day Antichrist, has set up idol worship. Jeroboam set up idol worship. What else did Jeroboam do that is connected to the modern day Antichrist? He set up a priest, a system of priests, a false system of priests. God has the heavenly sanctuary with Jesus as our high priest. And there is a false system of priesthood that is taking the place of Jesus' ministry. Well, we find that Jeroboam did the same in his days. He set up a false system of priesthood. And you know what was the most, most uh, interesting thing? Was that he decided to have the festivals around the same time as the festivals of Jerusalem's festivals. We find that the modern-day Antichrist is trying to draw our worship away from a holy day to another day that he himself has, has set up. And you know, this wasn't a mistake. Jeroboam knew what he was doing because it says that he set this up in Bethel. And Bethel was located at a distance that you could see Jerusalem. So Jerusalem and Bethel were visible to each other. And here was a temple, and here now Jeroboam built the temple of the false gods and the false priesthood, and he was the high priest who ordained everybody. And so the people traveling from all the tribes of Israel coming down to Jerusalem now had a choice. Do I go to Jerusalem or do I go to, do I go to Bethel? And there it was, because he said, these are the gods, these calves that brought you out of Egypt. And Rehoboam said, no, the worship of the true God is in Jerusalem. And what did all the people of the ten tribes do? They went to Bethel, to the false place of worship. And only a small remnant of Judah and the Levites still worshipped in the right way and in the right place because the rest had been deceived by a forgery by the Antichrist forerunner. And I look at our church today and there's false places of worship all over the place. It's not only the Antichrist system 
But Satan has set up false altars everywhere. Your work could be your false altar. You're pouring all your life, your energy, your worship into your job, into your promotion, into your advancement, into your recognition, into those letters after your name so that you will be something in this world. And that's more important than your worship here at church. You won't miss a day of work, not even one. But if you're feeling a little bit tired on Saturday, then, you know, what's the big deal? Where is your altars? Maybe your altar, you have made calves of gold of your children. Maybe you're idolizing your family and your children, and you're putting them even before God. Maybe it's a relationship, someone you shouldn't be with, or someone who you're infatuated with. Maybe it's a school. Maybe it's possessions. There are false places of worship all over the world. And God's people have a choice. Bethel or Jerusalem. Where do I go? But let me tell you something, friends. There is no peace in Bethel. There is no presence of God in Bethel. There is no joy in Bethel. There is only deception. Can you imagine if you bought a Van Gogh, a Picasso for millions of dollars and you set it up in your room and you bring your friends and all of a sudden an expert comes and you're showing off your art collection. They tell you, that's a forgery. That's a forgery. Are you living a forgery? Are you part of the remnant of God's people in these last days who are worshiping God in the right way? in the right day, in the right spirits, and setting aside all other altars that are false. Because this is the preparation, because the Antichrist is increasing in strength, his wound is healing, and the great test will come very soon. But if you can't pass that test, it's because you haven't passed the smaller test in your life the small altars in your life. You know, in the Bible, it is described that when there was a revival, they would go to these false altars and they would break them down. They would destroy them. They would toss them to the ground. They would melt down the idols. They would destroy these false places of worship. And I think we've gotten too comfortable as adults. Sometimes as a pastor, you know, I like preaching to young people, to, to teenagers especially, because they're, they're recognizing that they have to make a decision. Sometimes we feel like I've already made a decision 10, 15 years ago. But when we ask young people to give stuff up, they give it up. I preach messages to young people where we ask them to give up their music. They come, this is back in the days of CDs with their music, right? They have their rap CDs. They have their rock and roll CDs. They have all these popular people, and they put them in a burn pile. I've had young ladies bring their mini skirts and bring their over-the-top makeup and put them in the burn pile. I like that because it reminds me of the days of old when idols were cast down and destroyed and said, we are no longer going to serve those idols. 
But I wonder if we're too polite of a society now to give anything up. I wonder if, if, if next week we had a, a burn basket here, what would you bring? What would you bring? It's kind of hard now to bring your Netflix subscription. How do you bring that? It's kind of hard now to bring that music on your phone. It's kind of hard to bring those altars now. But guess what? You could go to the feet of Jesus and sacrifice them even now. In your heart and in your, in your mind. Because one day, the son of David is going to come as king and because he's your priest. And he's going to be looking for who is part of his kingdom. And so, just imagine, Pastor Silva is preaching to you. Just imagine that you have a heart of a teenager again. And you are looking in your life and you're looking in your heart and you're wondering, God, how come I'm not being blessed? How come I don't feel your presence? How come, how come my prayers aren't being answered? And then you realize, maybe because I'm in the wrong house of worship, I'm at a different altar. And you need to cast down that altar and come to the altar and house of God. And so imagine, Pastor Silva has his burn pile here. I got permission from the firefighters, don't worry. In your mind and in your hearts, what are you throwing in here today? What are you casting in here today? What idols, what false altars, what things between you and God are you going to put in here? So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, but open your mind and hearts. Because I want to imagine you getting up from your seat at this moment in your mind and walking up here to my burn basket, to my burn fire here. And you have something in your hands. You have something in your hearts. You have something in your minds that maybe you can't bring physically, but you could bring spiritually. And so in your mind, you grab that right now. You grab that thing. You grab that subscription. You grab that person. You grab that, that books. You grab that job. You grab whatever it is that you've been worshiping instead of God. And, and you bring it here, just like the young teenager we used to be. And you say... All for Jesus, I'm willing to give in. Do you see yourself? You're putting it in the pile. Some of you are struggling. You don't want to let it go. Oh, good. You let it go. I'm ready to light the fire. Are you ready? Let's light the fire. It's going up in flames. You're free. You're free. You're free at last. You're not deceived. You're saved from false worship. And the son of David, Jesus Christ, has come to bless you, to protect you, and to invite you into his kingdom. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for these stories. They convict us so much, Lord, that all throughout time, you have a plan for your people. But the enemy has a deception. The enemy is trying to give us a forgery. And this life has many false altars, and ultimately, the Antichrist has one great deception. But we want to stand in truth. And so today, you have seen by faith the sacrifices and the smashing of false idols and false altars. May this be true forevermore in the lives of those who made that decision. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the Son of David, and the Son of God. 
We all say, Amen. Let us stand for our closing songs, friends.